I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about two films, the 2014 film Paddington, directed by Paul King, written by Paul King, story by Hamish McColl and Paul King, as well as the 2017 film Paddington 2, also directed by Paul King, written by Paul King and Simon Barnaby, both of these films based on the Paddington Bear books created by Michael Bond. I'm joined by part of the Beyond the Screenplay team, Brian Bittner. Well, <laughs> he's literally eating a marmalade a sandwich. A marmalade sandwich, that's what it is. Was this a bad time to take my first bite? <laughs> <laughs> and Alex Cayetos. Hi. And we have a guest today, none other than Patrick Willems. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I've got to say, I am so mad that I did not think of the gag of taking a bite of a marmalade sandwich. Ah, that that was good. That was really good, Brian. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's even the proper, like, perfect sandwich white bread. Like, right. All the details we we, are we actually went out and got white bread just because we didn't have any. <laughs> the commitment is next level, as is the commitment of the filmmakers to these films, which we're going to talk about to quickly kind of set up these films. So, Patrick, for anyone that might not know Patrick, you are a video essayist, a not content creator on YouTube. But <laughs> it's very kind of you. <laughs> Your videos have a style like unique to yourself. There's no one else that makes videos like you. They are reviews, they're analysis, but also there's like ongoing storylines. <laughs> it's this kind of a magical hybrid thing that I have not seen anywhere else. So they're delightful. Thank you. And particularly delightful was your, your video on the Paddington films, uh, where your parents are adorable, as always. When did you first see these films? And why do you love them? Why do you love them so much you wanted to make a video about them? Okay, so when the first Paddington film came out in 2014, and I, I think it was a thing where they came out earlier in the UK, because I remember the Paddington 2, I think, came out in the US in like January, February 2018. But anyway, when the first one came out, I think like a lot of people just dismissed it because look, there are a lot of movies where live action humans interact with a CGI animal. Uh, you know, James Marsden has basically made a whole second career out of starring in those movies. Mm. And I was just like, oh, I guess they just took the Paddington books and made one of those. Okay, the trailer had a lot of hijinks in it, and I just skipped it. And then I saw, oh, you know, I, I had noticed that it got really, really good reviews. Not that Rotten Tomatoes scores are like the ultimate barometer of like a movie's quality, but these have notably high Rotten Tomatoes scores. Like mm -hmm. they, they are movies that are kind of universally loved. And uh, and I noticed that, and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I maybe it's pretty good then. And what happened was my mother actually watched the first movie before I did. And then at one point when I was visiting, was saying, Patrick, this Paddington movie is really good. I've watched it like three times. You should really <laughs> watch it. I think she even got my sister to watch it before I did. And at one point, the two of them uh, around some holiday sat me down. We're like, Patrick, you're going to watch Paddington with us. And, uh, <laughs> and I did. And I realized that they were correct and that it is wonderful and so much better than it has any right to be. Mm -hmm. Within the first like minute or two of the movie, like you just notice, oh, there's like real filmmaking craft here. Oh, this is like right. actually clever. There's like real effort put in. And so then when Paddington 2 was coming out and I, I, I heard from all of my friends over in the UK, it's even better than the first one. That one, I went with my mom to see it in theaters and I just I could not 
believe that it was this good. Like, right. <laughs> like, I remember coming home, uh, and this is like February 2018, and I'm just like, that's my movie of the year right there. Like, it's going to take <laughs> so much for anything to top that. And the reason I decided to make a video about it was. I have this ongoing series on my channel where the premise is I visit my parents, I show up at their house, you know, uh, usually looking a little unstable, and uh, and I go on a <laughs> monologue to them about why some movie or movies uh, are great. And suddenly, it, everything just kind of clicked right there together. I was talking to my mom about it. I was like, wait a second, we should just make the next video in the series about the Paddington movies. And plus, since my mom is very invested in them, it gave, mm. like, it, it wrote itself. It gave us a lot of, like, you know, <laughs> we could play off of each other. She could be, like, have more dialogue than than usual. Uh, the narrative was right there. And I just, of course, as everyone who makes, you know, videos about movies knows, I had to wait until the Blu-ray came out so uh, so I could rip that for the footage and then make mm -hmm, the video. Right. And um and and really since I think since uh early 2018 for about 3 years now it's just been a a mission that I've been on to try to convince everyone on earth to watch these movies Spread and the good word of Paddington. Yeah. <laughs> coming on this podcast I, I I you know right there it was like oh great I can convince more you guys have to watch these movies now for this episode so mission accomplished. <laughs> Yeah, well, right. And so I think that's kind of what I want to talk about next is Brian, Alex and I had not seen these films before, but I feel like there was all this hype around it, you know, from like your video and conversations on Twitter and just everywhere. People it's were like a, a steadily growing thing, especially like thing. Twitter is usually a terrible place. But the one thing everyone agrees on there is that Paddington <laughs> is our Lord and Savior and that we would die for the fair. <laughs> right. And so that that was just a really interesting framing to then like go into these films and be like, OK, what what is this, though? All right, let's let's actually like find out what's happening here. And like you said, as for me, anyway, as soon as the first film started i was kind of trying to poke holes in it because i don't like joy or something i don't know like i wanted to be <laughs> see if i could find a reason to like hate these films and just be like you know everyone else is wrong i can actually be critical of even these films but like pretty early on i was just very impressed by as you say in the video the level of craft and care and that effort went into making this movie good this wasn't just a money grab like those other animated people films like you're talking about that it sustained that level of care throughout was really really impressive so yeah brian and alex i'm, I'm curious to hear what was your guys first reactions brian do you want to start sure because one question i have for you patrick real quick is did you watch the paddington cartoon at all when you were a kid because i know alex and michael didn't and i was wondering if it's an east coast thing um i <laughs> i don't think i did it, it, it it's okay. a thing like i vaguely have a recollection of maybe when i was very young renting like a or getting a videotape of it from the library because mm. i was aware of paddington and that might be just the fact that like my mom is from ireland and maybe and like that's it's more of a thing over there and i and she introduced me to it uh like i grew up with like a stuffed paddington mm. and i vaguely remember that there was a cartoon but i can't remember anything about it Right. Yeah, I don't remember a ton about it, but I remember that I loved it and I would watch it and like even like ask my mom to make me like marmalade on crackers kind of thing, you know, but it wasn't one of these things where I had a huge, huge childhood connection with it. But it was definitely something where I was like, yes, I, I can spot that and recognize that that is a that is a thing from my childhood. But because it wasn't it wasn't a huge connection, I didn't like rush out to see the first movie when it came out or anything. And I just I'm not like a big 
family movie person. So it's like, even when, when they're like, oh, this movie's really good. I'm like, okay, fine. I would love to see it someday, but it's not high priority, you know? And that's what these movies were. It was like, cool. They sound great. Good for them. I'll see him eventually, you know, so it's just really nice. Anytime the podcast gives us an excuse to to watch something we've been meaning to to check out. And yeah, obviously, just these movies are a lot of fun uh, and I really enjoyed it. And and like you said, just the first 10 minutes of the first movie, you're like, oh, OK, you, you're doing a real thing here. It's not, you know, they're dancing in a swamp to Smash Mouth or something. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> right. right. It, it's it like. It's like this serious thing, you know, like the where's where's the uncle? I don't know. We found his his hat and, you know, we I have to send you away now to somewhere else because we can't be. And you're like, OK, like they are actually leaning into this like solemnity and this sort of real drama. And then the filmmaking itself is very high level. And there's a lot of references. You know, I love that you point out the sort of Wes Anderson-ness of it in your video. Mm-hmm. And there's other references where I'm like, was that a reference to that? Because that's like, that's a high level if it was, but cool. And then just like the beautiful fantasy of it all, where it's sort of, it leans into this magical realism where it's not trying to be full on Harry Potter or something where it's like, everything is magical, but you can just open a briefcase and a staircase comes out, right? Or like the the walls will change. And I really love that. And the conceit of a talking bear is sort of on purpose by design, like this weird, it's not insane that there's a talking bear, but also there aren't a ton of talking bears. So it's this weird, like the whole movie, the whole, both movies live in this kind of between place where it's not quite a full-on drama, but it's not quite like a kid's cartoony movie. It's not quite full-on fantasy, but it's not quite like a, you know, grounded in reality. And I think that just makes them very like light and entertaining, but also very rewarding to watch and, and enjoyable to watch. So yeah, I just had a really good time with them. Yeah. As, as someone who didn't know anything about Paddington, like I was not aware of this bear as a child. Uh, <laughs> it was not part of my like childhood books or anything. It was really interesting to get to watch this just totally cold, except for the hype, you know, the hype of this being the most wonderful thing in the world, apparently. I was really struck, you know, like we're all saying about just, first of all, the, the quality of the filmmaking, where you did feel like, oh, this is a director who's put care into every shot, where it's like, you know, there's, there's beautiful cinematography happening here. They're telling the story through really well-framed shots and really thoughtfully designed sequences. It's not just, yeah, that kind of cheap, whatever, we're going to get the chipmunk dancing here. You know, you had some great examples in your video, Patrick, of just, oh, yeah, yeah. this is the soul crushing family movie where I just want to die. And Paddington <laughs> is like the opposite of that, because there is like a real love and care in every frame. So I, that was what first struck me. Then I was struck by, yeah, the, like you're saying, Brian, the specificity of this story world in which it's a little bit odd that there's a talking bear. And it's kind of like a strange thing, maybe undesirable but also totally like accepted and totally not making people scream and go crazy that there's a talking bear from Peru sitting in a train station. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting to watch the movie kind of establish that. Like, these are the rules of this world. He is an outsider. It's a little bit odd, but it's also completely within the realm of possibility in this story world that this is happening. And it's right. like kind of okay. And that also gets you past the first like 30 minutes of most of this kind of movie, right? Where it's like, right. oh my gosh, talking about it, we have to go and hide you in our thing. And right. like now secret. we need to take you. We need to put you in like weird clothes. So nobody, and we have to pretend, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we've seen that so many times that it's just refreshing to be like, oh, it's a talking bear. Don't look at him. Keep walking. You know? <laughs> right. I've seen this movie several times and I still laugh today just at Hugh Bonneville's reaction where he's just like, oh God, a bear. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> Right. As if it's like, I don't know, like some sort of like eccentric street busker or like just a, right. the, the kind of person they just like, like, like family ignore that person. They're weird and I don't want to deal with them. And that's it. It's an interesting moment in that train station because it, for me, I was expecting the more, you know, like they walked past this bear and didn't notice that it was a bear. And so when they do notice, you know, Cubanovo's going to freak out and be like, get away from that bear. It's a dangerous bear. But it is this reaction of like, no, like, stop talking to strangers. Like, we're trying to get home. Uh-huh. <laughs> the finesse that is required to create this story world where you buy into it, you understand that it is modern day London and you can relate to it. But also, it's a modern day London where a talking bear is, you know, an oddity, but not insane. And I think that is really critical for all all the other work that then the movie goes on to do as far as making you invest and, and tell the story of Paddington and, and his journey. But you say modern day London, but even that was interesting because I couldn't place actually if this was meant to be like 2014, 2017. I don't recall. Are there like smartphones or, or technology in the movie? I, I, I can't I couldn't think of any in- instances of like like a lot of like Internet or smartphone usage. There's a laptop. Yeah. She's looking things up in the encyclopedia, even though there's a laptop sitting next to her. <laughs> right. It's also placed in this kind of like timeless moment where it's it's modern and it's it's kind of today, but also kind of not. Right. And, and there's the charm to like books and the geographers club with the, you know, the tubes. So there's something really nice about the world where it feels like it's kind of timeless. It's, it's not in a 2020 kind of reality. Mm-hmm. Right. And everything is so art directed that obviously yeah. like nothing is they're not trying to f- make it fit any current styles or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just in like the vaguely now. And that's it. Right. I, I do want to point out, like, I think a lot of heavy lifting is done just in that opening newsreel, just in terms of like establishing the world and the tone of it, because as soon as you have this British explorer teaching bears English, like in the first minute of the movie, it's telling you like, <laughs> right. okay, that's that's what this is going to be. That is like a, a plausible thing. This is a world where maybe, a you know, a bear can learn a human language and they have their own language. And that's just what this is. And I do want to point out right there, the idea of bears having a language that humans can learn is a thing that then pays off <laughs> in the third act because everything comes back. Right. These don't need to be this good, but they have these airtight scripts where there's not a wasted moment. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was really won over by both films was the design of their villains, because I just Mm. I I am always down for a campy, over the top, wonderful villain. And Nicole Kidman in the first film and then Hugh Grant in the second film. So delightful. So much fun. I was just so down with that. And so that, that was really what pushed over the edge for me was these actors are getting to have so much fun in these roles and I'm like here for it. They're both so good. I know like everyone talks about Hugh Grant and and how great Phoenix Buchanan is. I feel like Nicole Kidman doesn't get enough credit for how good that character is and how good she is. Just the relentless like amount of great visual gags that they get with that character. Yes. Again, I've seen this many times. I still laughed so hard at that gag where they have all of the animal heads on the wall and she walks to the next room and the camera dollies to the side and just the rest of the animals are just on the other side of the wall right it's it's so good yeah i think the the big difference between the two characters it, it has nothing to do with the performances which are both fantastic it's that the nicole kidman villain feels familiar 
it feels like the like oh like we need I, we, the one it's like the mr burns what is it you'll know patrick from 101 greyhounds yes greyhound thank you uh when he's trying to make the coat you know right or cruella Deville from before of that course. Right. yeah it's not even like uh like a cliche thing it's just kind of like a tradition of like okay it's a movie with animal protagonists you have a human villain who wants to kill them and stuff them and skin them or whatever yeah so there is a familiarity to that as opposed to this crazy actor villain who like <laughs> has his different costumes who which he talks to and then he dresses up as them and you know he's like so flamboyant and everything like it's just that's the big difference it's not about one performance being better than the other necessarily it's just about like this this is a brand new villain we haven't quite seen before as opposed right. to a villain that feels pretty familiar well and that i think that the the hugh grant villain also is thematically like in conversation with paddington right where paddington mm. is this hyper selfless creature and hugh grant is a completely self-absorbed actor like they're mm. on they're polar opposites in terms of you know they're kind of defining character traits and so i think that's part of like you're saying brian what makes it more interesting is that it's like it's a it's an opposite of paddington in a way that Corel deville nicole kidman isn't even though she is still fantastic and you point this out in your video patrick but the gag where she picks up what like the, the, ferret, the rodent the <laughs> right instead of the phone her performance in that moment when she realizes what it is and then picks up the actual phone is like oscar worthy like it's so <laughs> convinced like she just committed so hard and all these throughout we'll talk about performances more but yeah just everyone is going all out to make every little moment as good as possible and having these great villains is does a lot of work because also Paddington's journey and arc is kind of a an interesting one if you can even say that he has an arc in these films and we can talk about that more. I believe a past guest of this show, Sage Hyden, has a video where he talks about this is from like 2 or 3 years ago, so I can't remember what video it is, but where he talks about flat arcs. Right. His back to the future. Yeah. I think is the one that he uses. Yeah. I, yeah, I I think I think he might bring up Paddington as well. I haven't watched it I think since it came out, but I, but it stuck with right. me. But just as an example of like a movie where the main character is pretty much consistent and doesn't really mm -hmm. need to change, but over the course of the movie, through their actions, changes literally every person around them. So they right. are like this straight line mm. and just like this, like, uh, you know, this they facilitate just arc after arc after arc. Right. Which is really satisfying. And, and also like a tricky thing to write, a main character who basically is perfect and does not need to change. I think that necessitates having a villain. So I was watching this with my girlfriend and she was obsessed with it, loved it, and was sad anytime anything not happy was happening. And so, <laughs> you know, she was just like, I don't want Nicole Kidman to be in this movie. I don't want there to be an antagonist. I want this to be two hours of Haddington having fun and being happy. And I feel like it could be if there weren't these kind of external forces that are kind of trying to get him to change or putting him in literal mortal danger. And if he didn't go to prison, Paddington essentially pulls off like full prison reform in this movie. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like not okay, like Paddington 2 is like the greatest movie made about the prison system and prison reform and also about like the immigrant experience in like the 21st century. Bold. Bold statement. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a surprisingly progressive movie for a movie that doesn't really get yes. labeled that very often.
the choice to send him to prison, I feel like was a pretty bold one too. Right. Like I kept when it was happening, I was like, well, th- they're not going to do that. Like what's, what's this movie going to be if, if Paddington is in prison? Like they can't do that. And so then when he gets sentenced, it's like, wow, this like got dark and heavy. And also where is this movie going to go from here? And then it goes to all these wonderful, you know, Easter egg colored, beautiful <laughs> places. Right. That is kind of another interesting choice in like where do you put Paddington to give him these obstacles for him to have to overcome and change everything around him to roses and sunshine putting him in prison is a great place for that if if that is his kind of goal in life and clearly that is his goal in life yeah when when he was sentenced to prison i was like, whoa this movie just got dark <laughs> right. this is a movie about prison yeah, because then they commit to it. It's not just, and then he's out two minutes later, right? right. It's like now that now he's in prison for a while. He has to like write letters to the people who aren't around him, and then the family misses visiting day, and he and he yeah. thinks that like they've forgotten about him. Like, and again, that's what these movies do really well is they do actually commit to going places that you sort of don't expect a kids movie to go to, and that's what. And again, I don't even want to call it a kids movie, but you know what I mean, a, a family movie. I mean, like Nicole Kidman actually wants to murder him. And right. stuff him. Like it's like this not right. it's not like they're kind of talking around that. She's like, no, I want to take you and kill you. Apparently she trained with like throwing knives and how to like twirl knives around for the role. Like even when they were filming it, they were like, This is a little too dark for a kid's movie, and then ended up cutting all the scenes where she actually was like twirling and throwing knives. But uh, I just, wanna just see Nicole Kidman do that. Yeah. I need to check to see if there are deleted scenes on the Blu-ray because I want to see that mm. now. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Like, it is genuinely pretty surprising how much of the movie is set in prison. And then, mm-hmm. like, when he goes to prison, they introduce an entirely new supporting cast. The scene on visiting day where he just, like, rattles off the list of all of his <laughs> friends and they all have their catchphrases. And there's that perfect shot where they, everyone, like, in, like, inserts themselves in there and uh, and I know we, we've obviously talked about we've talked about Hugh Grant we've talked about Nicole Kidman Brendan Gleeson is like might honestly might be my MVP of P2 <laughs> P2 I love it the way he says marmalade as kind of marmalade <laughs> it, it, like I it, I think about it almost every day of my life <laughs> I, I I mean uh, when he, like his name knuckles with a capital N, and you see his yeah. knuckle <laughs> tattoos where he has uh, an apostrophe on one. It's like ev- <laughs> yeah. everything he does is like ugh, it's just. I mean, like, the thing is, like every movie is better with Brendan Gleeson, but he's just he's such a key addition to this. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just saying, uh, I love the prison stuff, and and also just like again, we've talked about the craft, but like those motion control shots where they have like these stop motion happening in like in these long shots with all of like the cakes appearing and all the redecorating happening that is again way more advanced uh just like filmmaking craft than a movie like this needs normally but it and it's like that extends Absolutely. to everything again you like the action climax on the train is better than a lot of blockbuster movie action climaxes <laughs> and it speaks to i mean those are complicated visual effects that costs money it you have to plan for shots like that like that costs money so it's really does feel like a willingness like from top to bottom to make these films really something special i always get a laugh out of the commitment to like a quick shot in in a movie Uh, danny boyle does this a lot where someone will say like oh i went to the place and i spoke to the crew there or something and you just it cuts to a shot of a room 
with like 17 extras in there it, whatever and then that shot is gone two seconds later like they had to go and light and do all that thing just <laughs> so he could cut to it for one second and you get that kind of commitment in these movies the the flashback of the parents you know throwing the ball and going to the hospital and that kind of thing you commit to let's lean fully into doing this entire flashback with costumes and set and extras and everything just for a 30 second gag which again as you point out does pay off later in the movie but you could write that in one line. You don't have to actually cut to a whole thing. And of course, that does take time and money, but I think it's so worth it. And then on top of that, the other visually astonishing thing about these movies is all, all the style stuff. You have the the Moonrise Kingdom dollhouse in the first movie. Mm-hmm. You have the leaves on the wall that when he walks in, into the projection screen in the first movie into his memory and the camera spins around mm-hmm. and suddenly he's through the through the projection screen the pop-up book sequence in the second movie is that insane so yeah gorgeous yeah the thief sequence it's all animated you know it's just it, you really you really feel like the movie doesn't have to deliver it just keeps going it just keeps delivering and saying oh, we could just stop here but we're going to do this i mean the end credits of Paddington 2 just when you think <laughs> you think you've had everything and then they give you a musical number over the end credits. Right. Full on. Yeah. Like really well done, full on set piece. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, g- genuinely, not that there's like a ton of competition, but one of the better musical numbers, I'd say, in like the past decade of cinema. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's so charming. Like, I, I, it made me realize I want to watch Hugh Grant sing and dance all the time. Yeah. Which I should have known from Love Actually, because that's one of the best parts of Love Actually is when he's like, the prime minister and dancing. Right. But he only dances. We needed him to sing. Right. To sing. Yeah. Too. No. yeah. <laughs> to, to, be, to be fair, there are many Hugh Grant movies where he ends up making a jackass out of himself on, on stage at the end, which is about a boy yep. and music and lyrics and love, actually. You know, so, I mean, we get a lot That's of it, true. but it's never too much. Well, he doesn't make a jackass of himself this time. This time he, he like he loves being on stage. He finally he made it. <laughs> the little the little note that uh, his agent has where uh, his problem is that he will not act with anybody else. <laughs> anybody else. As we've already said, I, th- I think, Michael, you mentioned that he's like the, the perfect like com- uh, thematic like counterpoint to Paddington, that he is just the most selfish person. He is an actor so selfish he cannot act with another actor. It's great. It's it, it's yeah. it's such a great idea for a character. And there's you get to do like fun meta things also, where it's Hugh Grant playing an actor and getting you know getting uh-huh. to tease actory things. Also, I think is just like a little fun, you know, topping there. Well, I love which character says like actors are the worst people Mrs. in the Bird. world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <I'm> just, <laughs> right. <laughs> I always love when when actors in a movie like say things about actors like they're the worst people you can't trust them right similarly so the way that hugh grant is designed to be kind of the opposite of paddington knuckles mcginty is also such a great design for an antagonist you know despite it being lovely watching brendan gleason do anything he's the worst scariest meanest person in the prison of course and so of course that's the person that paddington is going to have to win over and is successful in doing so. And so there are just like basic fundamental screenwriting, storytelling things happening that could have been overlooked or done half-heartedly. But I think that that relationship with Knuckles is what makes that prison sequence engaging because you're watching him 
change this one person. And via this person, he's changing the whole world of this prison, mm-hmm. which kind of makes me think like, so what do we what do we think is special about Paddington? Like, why do we think he resonates with people? Patrick, why do you love Paddington? <laughs> oh, my God, Michael, that's a big question. <laughs> Anything I'm going to say here, it's going to be like eye rollingly sincere and sentimental sounding but like it's it's unavoidable because it's like Beautiful. it's it's literally the, the stuff that they say in the dialogue like i uh, it's tricky because so much of this could be boring or like come off just just like not come off well but he is a person who's just pure and naive but also genuinely believes that everyone is inherently good and that he can be friends with everybody. It's kind of the Superman thing where it's like, oh, he was raised by good parents to just try to help everybody and just wants to, you know, appreciates everything that's done for him and wants to make the world better. And he's not like, not in the way where he's, you know, building his life to like joining the Peace Corps and and stuff like that, but in (laughs) the way where he's just like, oh, just throughout my daily life, I will help out wherever I can. I will, uh, like, I, th- you know, I like everyone, even if they don't like me. You know, I'm sure we'll get along at some point. And I truly, fundamentally believe that if we all get along, you know, the the world will be better. And it's it's such a simple idea. And the fact that it's communicated through the inherently funny idea of a bear in a hat with the British accent, <laughs> who likes, of all things, marmalade, and also, like, messes up a lot. So he's not just, like, a saint-like figure who walks into rooms and, like, blesses people. Like, his intentions are good, even if he sometimes is a little clumsy and, you know, makes things more difficult. There's also this level of, he doesn't seem to understand irony or the sarcasm or cynicism of any sort and so (laughs) there's something that's always so charming and wonderful about that just to modern viewers of a character who just takes things literally and goes up and you know addresses hugh grant on that stage and says oh what i know about you is that you used to be an actor and now you do these dog food commercials and there's no (laughs) judgment coming from him about that you know that, that there's nothing wrong with that in his mind this is just the reality but there's all this social understanding of what these things mean that he just he's just not plugged into i'm always attracted to characters like that in films where they're they're not the ironic sarcastic character they're kind of pure and just don't even go there they're they just see things clearly and simply yeah i mean i think part of the the power of the flat character arc is to introduce a character instead of the character needing the external change to make them change, they are the external change that is needed for this world, right? You know, mm. so you get, we just had Ted Lasso and Paddington reminds me a lot of Elf in that way. And even like Forrest Gump kind of to a degree, it's just this character who's like, I am going to just be this positive and trusting and everything. And you're not going to change that. You're not going to, and that becomes so powerful as you see the people around them constantly butt into them and butt into them, butt into them. And by the end, they realize that they, that they need to change rather than to change this positive, like rather than bringing you down to my level, it's, you're not going to change. I guess maybe I need to think about myself. And, you know, and I think you get more of that with something like Elf or Ted Lasso, but that's still very much what Paddington is doing here, right? It is that he is by maintaining his course, he is causing everyone around him to to change and, and come to his moral viewpoint basically which is better than theirs 
Yeah, and you even see that in some really nice small ways. Like at the beginning of Paddington 2, there's that little sequence where he's just like getting ready in the morning and you see his daily routine. You know, he uh, he sees all his neighbors. He catches a ride on uh, on the garbage truck and he's helping everybody out. And then later on in the movie when he's gone, you see these same characters again and how everyone is worse without him there. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. definitely. Well, and again, that that's conveyed visually. And, and I feel like this is a, a strong point of family films sometimes. I kind of think of Paddington as almost uh, like a live action Pixar movie is I think the closest thing yeah. mm-hmm. a lot of people have in America anyway to, to think about it. And that goes to the that level of craft like we're talking about and the visual storytelling that helps people, all people, but especially children, like be able to understand things very clearly when you're just showing it in a, a meaningful way. And it, I'm currently reading, I forget what it's called, but it's <laughs> the interview book where Francois Truffaut interviews Alfred Hitchcock and they're talking right. a lot about... Is it called Hitchcock Truffaut? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's their names. Yeah. Simple like that. But, you know, talking about Hitchcock's background in silent film, like that's where he started, where there there was dialogue with, you know, title cards, but otherwise everything had to be conveyed visually and so having to develop your storytelling techniques in that world means that you know how to convey things visually so well and that's one of the things that makes Hitchcock great I feel like that's another marker of really talented advanced filmmaking that is to hear throughout the whole Paddington these two movies is the dialogue is there and it's doing good things but visually you can very clearly understand what's going on this goes to the camera framing and also the way the the random hijinks are choreographed the way <laughs> he tries to cut this man's hair and ends up you know destroying or taking a bath and then the whole bathroom is underwater so there's like these visual gags and then also the animation and the visual effects i i feel like need to be praised because these are some of the best you know, one of the best CGI characters I feel like I've I've ever seen in terms of being believably in the space and emoting and conveying all the emotion and the nuances that are mm-hmm. happening within him. The most heartbreaking moment, I think, for me in, in both movies is when Paddington is at the Browns' house early on and he's listening through the pipes and he can hear Mr. and Mrs. Brown arguing about, like, this just isn't the place for him and he's going to cause problems. Paddington is so good of a person that he self-selects himself for banishment <laughs> and like right. leaves and goes to like, <laughs> and I'm just like, you're just, you're too sweet. It's the nicest thing ever. It's... And all that is conveyed, you know, through the animation and of course, Ben Wishaw's performance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you guys aware of the original Paddington casting? Colin Firth. Colin Firth. I heard about it just today. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. I believe the original poster for the first movie even had Colin Firth's name on it. Mm, Wow. Apparently it was a thing like I I think he was like working on it and then was like, you know what? I think you need someone else. Ben Wishaw is perfect. 
But the idea of Colin Firth's voice coming out of this bear just like does not compute for me. My brain just shuts down when I try to imagine it. <laughs> it's too it's too like manly. It's too like elder adult. male yeah. adult. Right. Yeah. Then wish I was like a genius casting choice because he's got that this is something kind of youthful and innocent, but also refined and polite and gentle listening to a lot of the voiceover in this movie i was getting a lot of cloud atlas flashbacks yep he has, he has such a great voice for kind of letter writing voiceover <laughs> sequences like somehow it's just perfect for that and it worked really well in cloud atlas as well like it, yeah i don't know what it is i yeah. mean look uh you know they should just pull like i mean if they make a third paddington just keep pulling from the cloud atlas cast because like you know right. <laughs> hugh grant great uh you know his uh like futuristic cannibal in Cloud Atlas, that that was his greatest villain performance until this. You get a very different movie. I think the temptation probably would be to cast more of a child's voice as Paddington, right? The sort of like, well, mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. is this naive young character, so we should get a you know 15-year-old actor to play him or something. And I think that does start to make the movie feel more, not childish, but child ish right like child centered <laughs> child focused i guess i should say uh, but mm -hmm. then i think you have the same problem if you cast a uh, colin firth if, if you're casting someone who's just this is a 50 year old grown man's voice coming <laughs> right. out of despair that has the opposite problem you know and then that starts to get weird when he's as naive and everything as he is so i think ben wishall yeah as you said alex it just walks that line where that sort of makes the character feel ageless in exactly the way that it's that he's supposed to because that's an interesting thing about paddington because in some ways he comes off as a child mm -hmm. mostly because of his height and you know he hangs out with the kids and stuff like that but then he goes to regular adult prison <laughs> right <laughs> and as they establish bear ages are not the same as human ages so he's like, mm -hmm. he's probably in a, a human adult age. And so they, they walk this fine line of never pinning down his age. There's no part where he goes to school with the kids. Right. He tries to get a job, but then also his jobs are the kind of things that like a teenager might do for like, like a summer job. I hadn't actually really thought about this before, but I do think they, they take a lot of care to not really define his age and have him in this sort of like, I guess, nebulous area where there's like child qualities and adult qualities. But also, as he mm -hmm. says uh, at the end of the first movie, he's not a person. He's a bear. So the same <laughs> rules don't exactly apply. <laughs> All right. Yeah. The story world. Yeah. Such a specific. It is like I, I feel like we could probably dig into the story world for forever. And now I want to be a fly on the wall of the writers as they were trying to craft like, how old is Paddington? How do we convey this to the audience and and find the right line also lest we forget in the opening scene of the second movie we do see paddington as a kid right there's a difference yeah mm -hmm. but also at the beginning of the first movie there's the time jump after the opening uh prologue and it says many years later and that's it it's just many years later yeah Right. And that's enough. And and all of this stuff is kind of why apparently a third movie is in development, but Paul King is not signed on as a director. And that's why mm -hmm. I'm kind of nervous about it, because I'm like, he is really the reason these are as good as they are. And I'm very and because it is such a careful balance that they strike with literally everything. I'm nervous about anyone else doing that. This is the thing. Paul King was like, I think a good 
British TV comedy director before this. Like mm-hmm. he directed, I think, like most of the episodes of The Mighty Boosh and then and various other like, you know, British TV stuff. I feel like after these two movies, I will watch anything he does, even if it's that deeply uninteresting sounding Willy Wonka prequel that I think he's signed mm. on to now. Oh, no. Yeah, he's currently on like a Wonka. It's called Wonka or something. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's one of those things where <laughs> I, I, like, I, I think at one point he was signed on for Disney's like Pinocchio remake, but then that mm. I think like Zemeckis ended up taking over that. But basically, like what Paul King has pulled off is astounding with these as like a filmmaker who was not like on anyone's radar before these and it's like whether it's just like the beautiful visual storytelling throughout all of these and just these scripts that are like you know kind of a mix of the best like pixar level like you know sort of like like emotional like uh just like like emotional efficiency and then also like shane black level action storytelling in terms of setups (laughs) Mm -hmm. and payoffs like the stuff that he's accomplished here with a property that i don't think anyone really cared that much about i'm there for anything he does after this yeah i went to watch an interview with him and i was kind of afraid he was gonna be Probably what I, I would imagine a Hollywood version of this person would be, which would be like a young, kind of hot shot, sort of douchey, like full of himself dick. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What do you really think, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about this imaginary person that I uh, concocted. He's such a lovely, he felt like a Paddington in some ways. He just, and <laughs> so it just immediately clicked of like, oh, with that personality and this level of talent and this amount of care, like I can see now why these films are so wonderful and why they're special. Yeah, so it, it's sad if he, he won't be on the third one. But like you, I'm, I'm very curious to see what he does next. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from the Paddington films. Patrick, we'll, we'll let you go last. We'll save the guest for last. Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. You you mentioned Paddington feeling kind of like a, a live action Pixar movie. And Pixar was the first thing I thought of while watching these movies. Just like we've seen with Pixar, these movies show that you don't have to dumb a movie down just to make it appealing to kids. For me personally, I'm least engaged with these movies when it's the facilities sequence or something like that. Cause I'm like, <laughs> okay, you've gone to like full cartoon over the top. Like there's just water going all over the place, but like for kids that might be their favorite sequence of the movie. Right. You know, and, and they don't care about, Oh, Paddington has to leave home or he has to go to prison, whatever. And I get that. Of course, like if I'm going to watch a movie like this, I'm not going to be like, this is not for me. How dare you? But what I think that these movies do so well, and you point this out in your video, Patrick, is that they sidestep most of the cartooniness of these movies. They, they actually do play out like a serious family drama. It feels more like E.T. than it does like a Chipmunks movie or something like that. It feels like we're like, we're going to do a drama that's sort of for family rather than we're going to do a cartoon movie that's like just for kids and kind of for nobody else. But the parents have to sit in the theater and watch it and they're going to forget about it the next day, you know, or or hopefully they forget about it the next day. <laughs> You know, but like having a bear go to prison, as we talked about, and be away from his family, that's not something you get in in those kinds of movies, those kinds of like, we're trying to just like do a CG character running around farting on things, you know, or whatever like they do. <laughs> now, you know, they're still full of hijinks, but they're not 
over the top. They're not constant. Usually they're clever. You know, you, I think the minimum is like one hijink every three minutes or something like that. Like we got to got to do it. Obviously, you have to deliver. This can't just be a, like a drama about a talking pair. Obviously, <laughs> um, this isn't BoJack Horseman. But like in Paddington 2 has fewer of those over the top hijinks. And it's a more lauded, more well thought of movie. And I think that that shows that the filmmakers realized from the first movie, they said the kids can get on board with this sort of more high level thinking and, and these higher you know tones and concepts and stuff. They can understand and engage with the drama. They don't have to be talked down to. And those kids may not get the references to Mission Impossible or Casino Royale and The Godfather, but they don't have to. It doesn't matter if they get the reference. They're just seeing a bear walk in a train or climb up a, a thing or whatever. Those are nice little winks to the adults in the audience of the filmmakers going, "We don't worry, we got you. We know you're here too. So we are going to throw. I think the, the window in his attic is the same window from Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Caesar's attic window. And I'm just like, oh, wow. really? Like, did, is that on purpose? <laughs> I Googled it and I couldn't even like see anybody else saying it. So I'm like, I'm <laughs> going to have to figure this out. But yeah, lesson is if you're trying to make a movie that's for all audiences, you know, try to aim high with those tones and themes of the story and bring those younger viewers to come up to that level because they will and they can, as opposed to aiming low where basically you alienate everyone over a certain age who's like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to be here for this. You know, I don't want to watch my beloved childhood character running around dancing to like mid 2000s rap metal or whatever, you know, like, wait, we <laughs> I don't need that. I'm very happy that family movies are getting more and more intelligent and mature. And I'm very happy that the kids still want that and, and are excited to engage with it and, and can because I think we're making better kids, right? Yeah. Two things I wanted to add there. I feel like the, the hijinks, and I think you point this out in your video, Patrick. So like in, in Paddington 2, when he's trying to cut the man's hair and then shaves his head and everything goes terribly wrong, it's crazy hijinks. But also it comes back later because that man is the judge right. sentencing him. It comes back twice. Yeah. He's on the train. And the train, right. Mm -hmm. It's that next level thing that I think makes even those goofy moments really special. And then I think this is something that Trisha said at, at one point on one of the Q&As, but I think it was someone had asked us about holiday films and why they're special or what makes a holiday film. And she was talking about there's this kind of idea that you watch as a family. Movies like this feel like that. We're like, you know, I don't have kids, but I would want to be watching this with kids and like watch it as a family unit, as opposed to some of those other things that feel a bit more like we're going to turn these images and sounds on and they're going to play them at you, child, to keep you occupied. Mm -hmm. But it's not meant to be kind of a, a collective group family experience. And I think that's that's part of the, the little extra magic, I think, that comes through in, in these films. Yeah. Alex, what's your lesson? My big lesson was set up some payoffs, but I, I'm going to leave that for Patrick, maybe. I don't know if that's going to be your big lesson. No, 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 no. That That's not... Uh, it, it's all yours. I've got I've got a different one. Well, I'm just going to say that, like, in the Pixar vein, you know, we, Michael, you often talk about Pixar as being great examples of films to study as a screenwriter because so much screenwriting technique is right on the surface. You know, the, the movies aren't trying to hide the change the character is going through, like literally and inside out, it's happiness needs to learn to embrace sadness. It, it's like completely right there. You can see what's happening on a kind of screenplay level. Yeah, setups and payoffs, I think, is is like the Pixar lesson of this movie where you can see so clearly there's a certain kind of satisfaction that comes in this kind of animated or family movie when the setups and payoffs are this clever and this unexpected, where you you do get a little flashback earlier in the movie to like the carnival with 
the dad throwing the ball at the coconuts. And it works in the moment as just kind of like a funny aside. And you don't think it's going to come back. It doesn't need to come back, but it does. And everything in the movie can operate that way where it's in the moment it is serving a function as a joke or as a piece of information we need in that moment. And then it also serves to give you that kind of like, ah, feeling of <laughs> this movie is tight. This movie is right. contained. It, it Everything in here was for a reason and it's all coming together at the end. And there's something about that kind of puzzle pieces clicking together sensation that is just, it's kind of, it's one of the things we like about movies, I think, is a finale that just clicks it all into place. And these movies do that as well as anything I've seen recently. And it, and it is there on the surface. So you can kind of study how did they plant that and how did they pay it off? And why did it feel so good? My sub lesson that I was going to say, <laughs> if Patrick was going to take this, was just going back to Nicole Kidman. The reason I love her <laughs> so much in this movie is because she's playing it almost in this like totally tongue in cheek kind of campy way where she has lines where she's like, you're stuffed bear or, you know, give up bear. The way she's delivering these lines, it's just complete <laughs> over the top camp. And then at the same time, her character like you mentioned in your video, Patrick, they bothered to give her a backstory that actually kind of makes sense. Like mm -hmm. she has an emotional reason to want to kill and stuff this bear beyond just she's a campy cartoon Cruella DeVille villain. And so that was really impressive to me in the first film. It, it both gave me something that I enjoy, which is an actress like Nicole Kidman getting to be this over the top, you know, Cruella DeVille thing. And it was actually it like made sense. And it was once again, a setup and payoff. It, it clicked into place at the end oh, it wasn't random that this explorer was this particular dude and we've been looking for him the whole movie. This is his daughter. Like It all clicks into place as well as just giving us like ridiculous Nicole Kidman being a spy <laughs> and, you know, hanging people upside down and everything that I want from, you know, her doing that. Right. This might be my favorite Nicole Kidman performance. Wow. Like I was really into Nicole Kidman in this movie. Also, just she she has like the best costumes too. Yes. Right. Mm. They're so cool. Like the part when she comes in in the gas mask and Paddington's like, it was the head of an elephant and the body of a snake. Yeah, the gas mask and then the camo. that look. Yeah. Uh. We don't have three hours to go through like every single cast member, but I do want to <laughs> shout out Peter Capaldi yeah. for really killing it in both movies. And the gag of him when he calls them at the end of the first movie and, uh, and Hugh Bonneville is like, it's Mr. Curry doing a silly voice. <laughs> right. Is always funny to me well and and his infatuation with nicole kidman was just so much fun to watch yeah. the, the needle drop with uh with the lionel richie cue right uh -huh. they cut to him so fast and it, like <laughs> it's so funny i also love when she, nicole kidman's like listing off the dangers of having the bear in the neighborhood and she says all night raucous picnics <laughs> yeah. the delivery is so committed to, yeah. to saying lines like that if we were going to say everyone that's great in this movie, we would just have to like read the entire cast list. So decided not to do that. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's so good. And so my lesson kind of coming off of yours, Alex, is just how efficient the screenwriting is and how it sets up things. It knows what is okay to be simple and it knows what things need a bit more work to establish or, or detail to get into. So for example, again, in your video, Patrick, you talk about how the first movie sets up the Brown family dynamic, like so fast, like within a couple shots, 30 seconds, you understand basically who these characters are, their relationships with each other. You get to know them a little bit more, but we don't need to know a ton about them. We just need to know the 
daughter is a super teenager person, but <laughs> like, uh, you know, and the son is really into this or that. They keep it simple, but it's not flat either. I don't know. There's, there's just something about this kind of pitch perfect level of exposition that they give to different characters and knowing how, how much, how big of a role they're going to play in the story. How much do we need to know about them in order to make this role meaningful and do its job? And then let the art direction and the performances help give extra life to all these characters. Because we, we really don't know that much about any of them. But you, you do get a picture of Sally Hawkins and Hugh Bonneville's relationship. And they're like, I feel like I know everything about their relationship and like who they were before they had kids. And then mm-hmm. they had kids. And like there's enough that you can put together the story in your head for those moments that you need to have that. But they also don't waste too much time having the monologue a, a backstory to us about any of it. Very smart, clever, sparse, concise writing. And it's impressive. And I like it. Me too. Patrick, what's your lesson? The obvious lesson that I feel like we all learned from these is that if you are kind and polite, the world will be right. The moral <laughs> lesson. Yeah. But beyond that, I guess in terms of screenwriting lessons, one thing that jumped out to me this time There's an example that I want to cite, but I think the lesson from this example is to always just put a a little bit more effort into what might seem like stock tropes or montages. Like you can still do them, but you can Mm -hmm. you can make them like a bit more interesting than people expect, because the part that I'm thinking of is in the first movie after the Browns decide to at least take Paddington home with them for the night. There is a montage of him looking out the window of the taxi, seeing every single landmark in London. Because I'm thinking of this because in a recent video, I talked about how there are at least three movies that basically do the exact same montage where they cut to a character going to London and they play <laughs> London Calling by The Clash uh-huh. and then just edit a bunch right. of landmarks of London together and they are interchangeable in these three different movies in three different genres. I was truly astonished watching your needle drop video where you, you just play them back to back <laughs> yeah. and it's literally the same. Yeah, It's like even the part where on like the drum part, they all do like they, they cut it the same way. It's mm-hmm. wild. But in Paddington, they have a montage where we show the landmarks of London and then they pull up and Matt Lucas as the cab driver says, oh yeah, it was his first time in London. I wanted to show him all the sights. And Mr. Brown uh-huh. is annoyed that they took longer to get home because they had to go around and see all of these things. We did the thing that you expect and it, and it fulfills the storytelling requirement of introducing him but also like we're not just going to do one of those stock montages we can add a little joke that then also tells you something about the characters as well it's a very simple beat that like every movie is gonna do but they put a bit more thought into it and i think it matters yeah right there are these layers where it's constantly doing more than one thing like there's always Mm -hmm. multiple things happening at once which makes it that much more delightful And the prison montage in Paddington 2 is a similar example of his transformation of the prison could have just been a more generic montage, but it's done with this beautiful kind of stop motion animation thing that that is just like a joy to watch in and of itself on top of the information being conveyed. You know, it's not it's not a lazy generic montage. It's doing its own thing that is just enjoyable to watch. All right. There's care being put into telling the story in a way that will make the audience feel the emotions that are happening within the story. Like I think Brian earlier pointed out where Paddington is watching 
at the beginning of the, the second one, the newsreel footage of his home. And then he walks into the screen and mm-hmm. it goes from black and white to color. And it's an abstract thing, maybe almost to put in a family film. It's clearly conveying to you how the character is feeling by using all the tools of cinema to do that. And that's above and beyond and why I am a convert and a Paddington <laughs> fan. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the club. You did it. <laughs> I mean, there, there's room for the rest of the world, too. <laughs> it's it's true. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? We'll do kind of a reverse order. Patrick, start us off. What have you been watching recently? I pulled up my letterbox to be like, what have I been watching recently? <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. like so much of what I watch is just research stuff because I'm just like, oh, time to do a video where I have to watch 15 movies for research. But one that I'm actually going to bring up. So it's, it was kind of research. Uh, I did a, a video recently where I talked a lot about Warren Beatty's filmography, which I think is really interesting. And it seemed like a good excuse to finally watch Ishtar, Mm. a movie that is kind of infamous. It was the last movie that Elaine May ever made. I mean, she only made four movies, but it's her final directorial credit. And it was just a like the most notorious like box office bomb of 1987. And it has that reputation. But over the past year, I've like I just I've watched more Elaine May movies. I've watched more Warren Beatty movies. And I was like, I, w- I want to finally check this out. And I think Ishtar is actually pretty good. Mm. I don't think it's like a secret masterpiece, but I think it is a genuinely funny movie that I had a good time watching. And I feel like it's like slowly been kind of reevaluated, but it was a nice surprise to watch a movie that has just been like a punchline since the year I was born. <laughs> and uh, and have it turn out that, oh, no, it's actually uh, pretty good and worth watching. Nice. nice. That's so random. I'm trying to remember where I've heard of this movie from, because I don't think I, I have heard of it recently or encountered it recently. Ah. But I think I had a VHS tape or my family had a VHS mm-hmm. tape. And I just remember, like, through my child's eyes, reading the word Ishtar and not understanding... <laughs> Like, was I not smart enough yet? Was this a word I haven't learned? Like, what does this mean? And so I'm having a weird child flashback right now. Yeah, I mean, it's everything about this movie is weird. Like, it's just a movie about two, like, bad songwriters played by Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, who then travel to Morocco and get embroiled in this plot with, like, the CIA and a group of rebels and stuff like that. I mean, it's a movie where the climactic scene has, like, Beatty and Hoffman in a desert shooting rocket launchers at the CIA. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Uh, Also, really good Charles Grodin performance. Nice. (laughs) This is not like Heaven's Gate. It is not the obvious kind of like, oh, the thing that spun wildly out of control and like this like obsessive, like fanatical undertaking. No, it was just a silly comedy that uh, somehow just became this like disastrous production and this notorious bomb. And I'm here to say... I liked it. Awesome. Fascinating. (laughs) So to continue the reverse order, I had never seen Sally Hawkins in a movie before. I have not seen The Shape of Water. I'm pretty sure I had not seen her. I know. Did you watch Happy Go Lucky? No. The the Mike Lee movie? That was kind of like one of her big breakout movies from like a decade or so ago. She's got to have been like a supporting role in something you've seen. I'm like, I'm scrolling through the IMDb and I'm <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. But I knew of her, right? And that everyone like loved her. And so I accidentally last week watched, I went from zero Sally Hawkins movies to four. I saw four <laughs> Sally Hawkins movies in a week because I didn't know that she was in Paddington. And I didn't know that she was in the Godzilla movies. Oh. <laughs> 
That's your first Sally Hawkins performance. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so I watched Godzilla versus Kong, uh, which she's not in. She dies in the one before that. Whoa. Uh, but spoilers. Because I was just in this mode where I needed to turn my brain off and watch things on a screen. I rewatched Kong Skull Island and the Godzilla, the most recent ones, which I'd never seen, and then the, the final Godzilla versus Kong. It's such a weird... It's such a weird... It's just it's a weird just, it's just a weird movie. Like I had such a strange experience <laughs> watching it. I don't think it can even be evaluated in terms of good or bad. It's just it's this whole other thing. It's a kind of movie that I didn't know they still made. Like it, it felt a little bit like the 1998 Godzilla, right? Where it's this absurd kind of campy action movie that tries a little bit to be a real movie and then tries not at all at other times to be a real movie. And it was just so fascinating. Can I say two things about this? Please. <laughs> okay. Um, I will say, so I Godzilla versus Kong was a, a little over a week ago. I went to a movie theater for the first time in over a year. Wow. Mm. Uh, I had that second shot, waited two weeks, and I went to the, as New Yorkers would know, the Lincoln Square IMAX, the mm -hmm. biggest screen in the city, at least, to see Godzilla versus Kong. And I also can't really tell you if it's if it's good or not, but I had the most wonderful time. It, <laughs> I, it was like pure <laughs> ecstasy for two <laughs> hours because it was so big and so loud and they punched each other and I was not watching a movie on my TV. And yeah. um, that was incredible. What I will say also about the movie is um, I don't mean for this episode to just be like, let's just like promote Patrick's stuff. Uh, like you know, for a full hour. I mean, that's fine. No, please. Last fall, uh, I made a video about what I coined uh, the modern class of gonzo blockbusters, mm. uh, as in these giant budget movies that may have narrative failings, but tend to just constantly let's throw out these insane imaginative ideas and visuals scene after scene uh just they have this relentless energy to them fast and the furious type thing not not even fast i mean like they're usually sci-fi movies i'm talking okay. stuff like aquaman and uh sure. and valerian and the city of a thousand planets and mortal engines and mm -hmm. stuff like that stuff where like you know every five minutes or so like you go like oh my god that is what? Like, 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 there's like a character that comes up or just like, let's introduce a new world or that kind of thing. Godzilla versus Kong, I think, kind of fits into that group because it'll be a thing where it's like, oh, and now uh, here's a guy who has a machine where he sits in the middle of a of, of uh, Ghidorah's skull and can psychically control like a monster. And now here's a world on the inside of the Earth where gravity is flipped and we have to do a 2001 A Space Odyssey Stargate sequence to get to that world. What? That kind of thing. <laughs> This is in this movie? There was sunlight inside the Earth. Yes. That's the thing that like broke my brain. And Kong has an axe that's made out of one of Godzilla's spines, and it has Godzilla energy. Like You can charge it up via... Yeah. Wait, what? It's yeah. insane. I mean, it's like... It, <laughs> it, it's the $200 million equivalent of like a child smashing action figures together. Right. And if you're mm -hmm. into that, and especially if you're vaccinated and can see it in IMAX, I recommend it. Yeah, there you go. I think that's a really good way to sum up. It does feel like if a child was playing with the toys and telling you was and then this happens and then this happens. Yeah. And that's kind of why it is strangely enjoyable.
Alex, what have you been watching? <laughs> so I've been playing, but kind of watching uh, the PlayStation game Detroit Become Human, mm. uh, which is the 2018 game from Quantic Dream. They're, they're a French video game developer that pretty much exclusively does these games that are trying to be what I would just call interactive drama, where there's very little gameplay. I mean, there's a little bit of moving your character around, and that's like the least fun part of it. Most of what's happening is there's just like constant choice points being given to you as like the player slash viewer of, you know, what emotion should the character respond with to this inter- in this interaction? Uh, do you go left or right during this chase sequence? It's almost like you're kind of a co-screenwriter where you're having to make instinctual choices about what the characters do. What is pretty remarkable about this game from Quantic Dream is they've gotten good enough at this type of storytelling that they've bothered to map out really insane branching structures for all the different characters. And they actually show you after each chapter of the story, all the different paths you didn't go down and like think and you, you don't even know what happened in those paths. They're like, you know, they're locked. They want you to replay the game and see what happens. But it gives you the satisfaction of knowing, oh, I really am co-writing a story here. And my kind of instinctual choices are going to tell a complete story and it's going to conclude and it kind of feels like the end of a movie at the end but it's different it's very different than what it could have been and characters can die and a character i really liked i screwed up enough with him that he died well before the ending and the story was able to carry on without him i think it's a really cool experiment in this hybrid form that is more accessible to people that don't usually play games you know like my mom was able to stand with me over winter break and like play some of it and she could even like control it like it was Mm -hmm. simple enough and, and, you know, and, and if you screw up in the game, that could become part of the story. So, like, if you're bad mm-hmm. at games and you're bad at the, like, chase sequences, okay, your story is this person <laughs> dies during this chase sequence. That's what happens. I'm excited to see what this company continues to do because I like the experience of gaming sometimes where I have the interactivity, but it's not about, you know, gamer skills. It's about experiencing a story that can only be done in an interactive medium and these games are kind of relaxing in that way. You know, you're not having to learn complex controls or be super good at shooting or something. It's just sit back, relax. Here's a pretty good story with good music and real actors. Uh, you recognize a lot of the actors, Clancy Brown and uh, hmm. Jesse Williams. Like there's pe- there's a lot of faces that pop up. You're like, oh, I know that guy. And yeah, it's just it's really lovely. And it's on PC and uh, PlayStation. So I'd recommend checking it out. Nice. Cool. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, well, I'm going to keep the Sally Hawkins love train going because my main thought while watching Paddington 1 was just, why why do I watch movies without Sally Hawkins in them? Like, why do I bother? And uh, and I remembered <laughs> I had not seen Happy Go Lucky. So, uh, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned Mike Lee in your video, Patrick, because I was like looking him up as I was watching Happy Go Lucky and Vera Drake stars Imelda Staunton, a.k.a. Aunt Lucy and Jim Broadbent. And I was just like, this really is just like Mike Lee cast Paddington. And yeah, so and I always wanted to see Happy Go Lucky and just never sat down to watch it. And I had gotten my one and done vaccine and was not feeling great that day. So I was like, I just <laughs> want to put something on that that feels nice. And uh, and yeah, so it's a this 2008 movie starring Sally Hawkins. She's like this very positive, perky person, but who's easily distracted and just kind of wants to do her own thing. Uh, and we follow her day to day, part of which is that she starts taking driving lessons from a character played by Eddie Marson, who is just a very strict and angry man who he plays that role wonderfully in many movies that I've seen. It's basically like if Joy from Inside Out was started taking driving lessons from anger. 
Like if you picture that, you can picture exactly what their scenes together are, you know, and you put them in a small car. And of course, they begin chipping away at each other's flaws and, and challenging each other and stuff. It's, it's such a good example of how to get natural conflict into your movie. Like take a character with these traits, put them in a small space with a character with these traits let go and then run away before like the fireworks happen, <laughs> get out of the way. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really interesting character study and it's an interesting example of a movie where at the end you're kind of, I just watched another round also. And there are these movies where at the mm-hmm. end you're like, did you learn your lesson? I'm not sure. I learned the <laughs> lesson. I'm not <laughs> quite sure if you did, but like I had a really good time watching the movie. Sally Hawkins is phenomenal in it and I'm a dumb dumb for waiting this long to see it. So happy go lucky. Check it out. I just want to say, jumping on that, um, I'm really glad that there's been a lot of Sally Hawkins talk during this because I'd been feeling bad that we hadn't talked about her at all with the Paddington movies. I'm like, right. she's so essential to them working. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm really happy about that. And also, I'm happy to hear the another round shout out because that is one of my favorite movies from the past year. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's also without spoiling the ending. It is that thing where you wonder if they learned the lesson, but also the ending is so great so good that uh, i'm also uh, like i don't even really mind because i w- w- what a final scene yeah yeah i agree awesome that's our bonus what are we watching another round everyone go watch it <laughs> great well this has been our conversation about the paddington films patrick thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for exposing us and making us better people along the way i i am so happy I had this opportunity to do it. And I'm, I'm just so happy that you guys all liked these movies. I will admit, when I was coming to this, I was like, everyone likes these movies. But what if what if one of these guys is like finally the one who doesn't? Right. How am I going to handle that? So nothing to worry about. I feel like they're kind of like like puppies. Like you're not like you just can't dislike a puppy. Right. Well, Paddington reminds me of a dog. Like he gets you in the way that a cute dog does. Mm. You can't. You can't deny it. It's like these movies are like a barometer for like people. Like if you don't like these movies, you might be a bad person. Right. And I probably don't want to know you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we all liked it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God. Luckily, everything was fine. But yes, thank you, Patrick, for joining us. We'll have a link to your video on Paddington in the show notes and his channel. Everyone check it out. If you haven't, it's very fun. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Brian Bittner, Alex Caeros, and Patrick Willems. All of our Twitter handles are also in the show notes. Send us a tweet. Say hi. Let us know what you think of Paddington. If you're the one person in the world that hates Paddington, let Patrick know so he can kill you. Wait, can I just say here, Paddington wouldn't want that of me paddington would want me to right. see the good in even the people who don't like these movies and that's what i'm gonna do that's how good paddington is thanks for listening we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>